The time has just gone 8 p.m. and you're tuned to Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM. A very good evening from me, Adrian Fuchs, and a warm welcome to tonight's edition of Great Interpreters, the final program in our special series on Maria Callas. In our previous three programs, we traced Callas's development as an artist, from her humble beginnings in New York, her student years in Greece, through to her triumphs and successes as the world's reigning prima donna. We also discussed Callas's voice, her weight loss and remarkable transformation into fashion icon, and we dispelled many of the scandals and myths of the Callas legend. If you missed any of these earlier programs or would like to listen again to tonight's program, you can do so by visiting my website on and off the record at www.onandofftherecord.com. You can also email me at adrian at onandofftherecord.com. In tonight's program, we trace the final years of Callas's life, from 1960 to her death in Paris on the 16th of September 1977. Here then is the final chapter in the story of Maria Callas. Well, in spite of uh, publicity and uh, critics and reporters, you're not too unhappy with life, are you? Unhappy, <laughs> I should say not. There is one enormous reason of my life, in fact, an enormous career, a successful career. That is being a happy wife and have, having uh, made a, a successor of my marriage. I'm very proud of it, and it's the main thing in the life of a woman, I feel, especially for an artist also.
famous Habanera from Carmen, sung there, of course, by Maria Callas in that 1964 recording, conducted by George Pretre. Though Callas had ridden out the worst storms of her career, the scandal that would ultimately put the seal on her tabloid reputation was about to unfold. When she and her husband, Giovanni Battista Meneghini, were invited by the Greek shipping magnate Aristotle Onassis to join him and his wife, Tina, for a cruise on board his yacht, the Christina, in July of 1959, the attentions of newspapers were initially focused on two of the yacht's prominent guests, Sir Winston and Lady Churchill. But by the time the cruise ended on the 23rd of August, 1959, Callas and Onassis had become lovers, and their affair was the subject of newspaper headlines the world over. Though unattractive, Onassis had a vitality, an energy and a charm about him that reawakened in Callas a sensual side of herself as a woman that she had not known with Meneghini, a man 28 years her senior and more of a father figure than a husband. Director Franco Ciferelli and Impresario Sandor Kurlinski. First of all, he was Greek, the most powerful Greek man, a very sexy man, very charming man, though he was terribly ugly. I never met anybody so seducing. If he wanted to be really dangerous, he could be dangerous with women. Eh? She suddenly met a man of the type of Onassis, well, who was supposed to be in sex one of the most uh, terrific people on earth. Well, she hardly had any sex life. She had a career and wasn't involved till she really got slim and different in any person who was interested in her as a woman. Onassis, on the other hand, was attracted to Callas because of her fame, her celebrity and her magnetism. He cared little for the world of opera. Accompanist Robert Sutherland recalls. He used her like a, well, I suppose you would say, nowadays you say the diamond in his crown, you know. He used her as a hostess and as a glamorous uh, adjunct to his business life. He never really understand, understood her. He didn't, wasn't really interested in opera. He didn't understand the artistic nature. Uh, you know, when Maria was leaving the Christina to come to sing Covent Garden, where people had slept outside for five nights to get a ticket. And she was leaving the Christina down in the Mediterranean to fly to London. And he said to her, why do you bother to sing? I've got plenty of money. She had no conception of her needs as an artist. Less than two months after that fateful cruise on board the Christina, Callas had separated from Enegini. In an interview with Life magazine in 1965, she stated, I was kept in a cage so long that when I met Aristo and his friends, so full of life and glamour, I became a different woman. Living with a man so much older than myself, I had become prematurely dull and old. I got heavy like Batista, thinking of nothing but money and position. Here is Callas in an interview with Mike Wallace, recorded in 1974. Obviously you've had a great success in your professional life, your private life has not perhaps been as successful, no? No. No. Why? Well, why? Probably uh, I became a bit too famous for my own good. And uh, while I... Maybe also I put men on a pedestal. Who? Uh, well, for instance, my husband, he wanted so much that I be la divina. For instance, he was taking things on, out on people as he was 
nothing special. If your husband was nothing special, why did you marry him in the first place? He was a good person, I thought. And uh, if you have a per as my home family was not, um, with my mother, I was not well off, and I was alone, and I felt that this person really loved me. Hmm. But uh, I'm afraid that he loved uh, what I represented. It was a very unfortunate uh, episode of my life that I prefer not to discuss because I would have preferred that he be the person in the family, the. Uh, you see, as strong a character as I am, I uh, like that men uh, be the man, the man to wear the pants in the house. In private life, I'm quite timid. I'm what I, uh, shall we say, a little Greek girl born in America that believes that a woman has to be uh, quite honest. Yeah. Strangely enough, though I'm a diva and I could uh, get away with everything. Accompanist Robert Sutherland and tenor Giuseppe Di Stefano. She'd had this terrific career. She'd won the admiration of the whole world. You know, there was nothing else for her to win. And then she won the admiration of the jet set high society. One night in Monte Carlo, she mentioned me all the names of the, the, the owner of the, the ships, the boats there. I said, I was making fun all the time. The business. Ah, you remember all the names? Of the owner here, the ships, they don't remember the words of uh, Leon Cavallo and Pagliacci, the area of Leon Cavallo. How is that? <laughs> they try to explain me. So you pay more attention to this. As a matter of fact, you want to become the queen of uh, that society, the most beautiful woman in the world. This was her ambition. And profoundly speaking, she wanted to live for love. In the midst of the media frenzy that erupted around her, and during what was undoubtedly one of the most difficult periods in her life, Kalas returned to Milan in September of 1959 to record La Gioconda for EMI. Having since patched up relations with Antonio Giringelli, the director of La Scala, La Gioconda was Kalas's first recording at La Scala in more than two years. In it, Kalas is in better control of her wayward top voice than she was many years and many pounds earlier, and she once remarked that the final act of this recording was among the most satisfying of her records, adding quietly, it's all there for anyone who cares to understand or wishes to know what I was about. Let's listen to the section starting Echo il Velen di Laura from this 1959 recording of Ponchielli's La Gioconda.
When recording on La Gioconda had been completed, Callas rejoined Onassis on board the Christina. She indulged in a life that had so long been denied her, spending her days swimming, sunbathing, staying up late into the night, talking, dancing and drinking with some of the world's wealthiest and most socially prominent figures. When Callas did leave the sanctuary of the Christina for the occasional concert or recording, she was besieged by the press, and even her mother, Evangelia, could not resist adding her voice to the barrage of press reports and headlines, stating, I was Maria's first victim. Now it's Meneghini. Onassis will be the third. 
Evangelia suggested that Callas would marry Onassis to further her limitless ambition, but as usual, she got it quite wrong. Callas was not attracted to Onassis because of his power, money or status. Instead, she desired those things that she had not been able to have with Meneghini, a passionate physical relationship with a man, children, a family. Following years of grueling work, keeping a tireless schedule of endless performances and nights of studying libretti, only to be lynched by the press for missing a single note, Callas' desire to perform had been steadily decreasing. Would you yourself like to go away, say, for two years and not sing at all? I'm afraid that will happen in about a year. After that, I'm afraid I will give up singing, if not completely, at least very rarely I will sing, only in occasions that will be worth my while, because I really feel that I'm wasting my energy uh, just for the sake of celebrity, which I think and feel I have obtained even maybe too much. Mm. So, as I said, I feel a duty to myself and to art to work the least possible and the better possible. Mm. And I'm really serious about yes. this. In a 1960 interview, Kala stated, I didn't say yes to the Paris Opera for Medea. I didn't say yes to La Scala, to Covent Garden. I no longer have a desire to sing. I wish to live, to live like any other woman, to have a baby. I'm 36 years old with no one in my life, and I don't even know if I'm capable of giving birth. As Kala spent more and more time with her nasses, her stage appearances decreased dramatically, until by 1962 they ceased altogether, and it was only at the occasional charity concert or recital that the public could still see Callas perform. In these rare concerts, and in the handful of recordings that she made during the 60s, her voice began to show the effects of so many years devoted exclusively to performing at the highest levels, though the artistry remained incomparable.
The letter aria from Massenet's Werther as sung by Maria Callas in that 1963 recording. After each of her increasingly rare performances, Callas would rush back to the sanctuary of the Christina, to Onassis. She didn't practice on board, she didn't even think about singing, and of course the neglect of her voice would only hasten the decline of her failing powers. Gradually, the remarkable artistic machinery which Callas had so carefully built up and maintained during the past 25 years of her career started to disintegrate, as Callas the artist receded more and more into the background. Singing, however, was the one thing that defined Callas, and she struggled to give it up completely. The few performances that she gave were traumatic, as she attempted to cope with her own legend with increasingly limited means. Following her performances of Medea at La Scala in 1962, Newspapers were filled with unfavorable reviews, and many agreed that the voice of the century was in shreds. It was unbearably sad to watch, wrote the critic Pierre-Jean Rémy. Her voice on the point of giving out, she somehow struggled through the part. It was the last time that Callas performed at La Scala, and she realized that serious work was needed to retrain her voice. During 1962 to 1963, she started working in her own words, from the beginning, like a student. Following her final appearances at La Scala in June of 1962, the better part of two years passed before Callas again stepped onto the stage of an opera house. At various intervals, rumours would reach newspapers announcing her return to the stage, as Anna Bolena in London, Orfeo in Dallas, Medea in New York. But when Callas did finally return, it was as Floria Tosca at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden. As director Franco Ciferelli recalls, it took a long time to convince her and besides my own effort, most of the credit belongs to the late Sir David Webster, the general manager of the Royal Opera House. He literally followed Callas all over the world until she accepted, doing everything he could to make it come true. I had been offered to produce Tosca several times in various opera houses, and I always refused for one simple reason, because I didn't think that there was a woman who could portray the character of Tosca the way I saw it except Maria, but for many reasons she was never available. And now when Sir David Webster told me that he was trying to convince Carlos to come back to the stage in its opera house in Tosca, I really jumped on the news and began to call Maria and put a siege on this woman, calling her all hours of night and day. Finally one day she told me, come to Paris and talk to me about this project. So I went there, and the first thing I noticed were the long nails of her beautiful hands, and I realized that they were the nails of fingers 
who never touched the, had never touched the keyboard of a piano for at least two years. And I told her that. I said, I'm very sorry, because obviously you haven't been practicing your voice. She said, how do you know it? I said, look at your fingernails. And then she realized, looked at them, and uh, made a beautiful gesture with her hands, like a little girl, and uh, she said, yes, you are right. But I've been distracted. I had uh, other things to think about. I am trying to fulfill my life as a woman. But now I, I want to go back to the stage. Maria really gave a memorable, definitive interpretation of Tosca. She didn't play it as a prima donna approaching the characters, another prima donna. She played it as a woman with all the marvelous human values that she could so vividly portray on stage. The tenderness, the weakness, the love, the violence, the jealousy, all the beautiful things that she as a Greek woman could find in her, in her own authentic nature. We were very blessed in that production also for other elements. Mainly it was the participation of Tito Gobbi who accepted the role of Scarpia. Commenting on her 1964 performances as Tosca at Covent Garden, Andrew Porter wrote, Kalas's Tosca is superb, all that we look for. The beauty, the quickness of response, the womanliness, the sudden flares and flickers over her steady love, the anguish, the courage, all are there. And so is something else which cannot be defined. It has to do with bearing and gesture and timbre and phrasing and utterance of the words, all combined. The mysterious qualities which not only make her colours, but also make every heroine she portrays distinct and indelible. No performer since has yet surpassed Callas's Tosca, noted the critic Irving Collidon, and it's beginning to look like no one ever will. Callas's colleague, Tito Gobi. With Maria, I was Scarpia, and she was Tosca. And that is the difference. I have been singing this role with so many with all the soprano in my time and everyone has a good interpretation naturally you can change the interpretation everyone can slightly change the interpretation even if the rhythm of the opera and the music keep you obliged to express in a certain time but uh, Maria was never Maria was Tosca on stage and that is the really the, the reason for which she was uh, absolutely concentrating every single movement, every single action, reaction.
An extract there from Act 2 of Puccini's Tosca, as sung by Maria Callas and Tito Gobi in that 1964 recording conducted by Georges Prêtre. Encouraged by the reception accorded her comeback as Tosca, Callas accepted an engagement for eight performances of Bellini's Norma at the Paris Opera during May and June of 1964. Zeffirelli, who again directed, spoke of Callas's work in Paris. So that Norma that we did together in Paris and was supposed to come to the Covent Garden and didn't come, was the ultimate perfection of interpretation of the character. Though, in the course of the evening, there were about four or five notes missing. But who cares? That's what I, I had a tremendous uh, riot with the French press and so on. I really insulted them. I should be grateful to God that you had the opportunity of seeing this woman. A singer and a dancer... Life is short, like an athlete. So while that mind and spirit develops, so that interpretation becomes more and more important, more deep, more intelligent, more interesting, their physical means get weaker and weaker. Of Callas' 1964 Paris Normas, the critic Claudia Cassidy reflected, This extraordinary woman is an almost entirely self-made, as a great beauty and as the supreme exponent of a great and all-but-forgotten art, whose Norma, Violetta and Lucia a decade ago blazed a trail unique in our time. She can still sing magnificently when not challenging the stratosphere. Even there, sometimes when you have least come to expect it, the rocket booster works. Her voice still has that curiously poignant colour that to the devotee makes so many other voices seem pallid and wan. It can spin the pianissimo of the most ravishing texture and stab the heart in mezza voce. It can also dry up, turn harsh and out of tune, and sound desperately forced in the merciless tessitura of Bellini bel canto, painfully pinched in the acrobatics of fioriture. Must we settle for this, we who have such dazzling memories? Is her voice irreparably ravaged, or can she recover the stellar ground lost in the very years of idleness that should have established her in supreme security. With most people, I should say that she and we are out of luck. With Callas, I am not so reckless. Soprano Grace Bumbry. She just simply couldn't pull it together anymore. She couldn't pull it together. You have got to have the nerves. People don't realize what it means to stand on the stage and sing it in front of thousands of people. Non sono, 
On March 19, 1965, having buried the hatchet with Rudolf Bing, the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera, Kalas made a long-awaited return to the Met in Tosca, with a performance fee of $14,000. Though the performances were sold out in a matter of hours, the demand for tickets was such that the Met administration had to keep them in a safe. A banner proclaiming, Welcome Home Kalas, was hung on the front of the opera house, and people queued with sleeping bags, blankets and pillows outside the Met for four days prior to opening night for standing room tickets, making the distinguished centre of high culture look more like the site of a popular rock concert. On opening night, the house was filled with celebrities, including Jacqueline Kennedy. Although the audience was taken with the heroic widow of JFK, whom they applauded vigorously when she entered to take her seat, it was Cullis who held their attention and won their adoration. At the first sound of her voice offstage singing Mario Mario, the audience collectively held its breath, and when she stepped on stage, Kalas was greeted with a thunderous applause from the enthusiastic audience.
Following her Met performances, Callas returned to Paris for five performances of Norma at the Paris Opera. Physically exhausted and suffering from dangerously low blood pressure, she had to cancel the fifth performance after the second act. With little time to rest following these Normas, Callas left for London where she was due to appear in five performances of Tosca at Covent Garden beginning at the end of June. But given her health and precarious vocal condition, the prospect filled her with apprehension and she cancelled all but the last performance on July the 5th, a charity royal gala performance in the presence of Queen Elizabeth II. Though she did not know it at the time, that final Tosca was to be her last operatic performance. She was 41. Producer Alan Seedwright, biographer Nicholas Gage and Kalas's friend Nadia Stansioff. She just tears the inside out and then they come after her and she runs up the battlement side and she gives out that last note before she jumped. Ascarpia before God. And that's the last note of her opera career. Maria never performed on the opera stage again. And later, the reason became clear to me when she asked me to come and see her in her Paris home. She turned to me and she said, Alan, Callas is dead. And I looked into her face and I really didn't quite know what to do. She always views herself as two people, Maria, the the woman, and Callas, the artist. And she saw Callas, the artist, dying. She did see herself as Maria, and there was this other being that was Callas. And she talked about Callas as La Callas. She spoke of this other part of herself. And there was Maria, who was a very charming, sometimes difficult, sometimes infuriating, sometimes coy, lovable, wonderful friend. And then there was Callas, who was the woman who was on stage, who, did, who was the artist. And I remember, for instance, her listening to records, her own voice, um, when we were in Greece on an island, and she, at the end of the record, she looked very sad, very pensive, and she said, Carlos will never sing that way again. In 1966, Kalas renounced her U.S. citizenship, not only for tax purposes and to end financial difficulties with Menigini, but also to try and pave the way for the possibility of marriage to Onassis. By reverting to her Greek citizenship alone, Kalas nullified her former marriage, for not having the sanction of the Greek Orthodox Church, it was not recognized in Italy, and once the Italian laws were changed, Kalas applied and obtained a divorce.
You have given up your uh, citizenship, that's correct? Yes, that is correct. And you're taking your Greek citizenship back? I've already taken my Greek citizenship. What is the reason behind this, Madame Callas? Well, the real reason I can even say it is that I am a free woman, you see. Because uh, during, um, with the Greek law, who is not married after 1946 in church is not married. So you understand? I understand completely. And now, do you have any intention to marry Mr. Onassis? Oh, those are not questions to... Uh... No, right now I'm a free woman. I'm very happy to be so. That is why I had to give up this American citizenship, unfortunately. You, can't, you understand. As John Ardwen points out, there is little doubt of the depth of Callas's feelings for Onassis and her continued hope of becoming his wife and of being a mother. Having been unable to conceive during her marriage with Menegini, Callas had considered herself barren, but in 1966, at the age of 43, she fell pregnant. But when she told Anassus about the pregnancy, he warned her that if she had the child, it would be the end of their relationship. Though Anassus's ultimatum may have been for dynastic reasons, it may also have been because he was already romancing one of the few women in the world more famous than Callas, Jacqueline Kennedy. Callas was aware that Onassis was having an affair, though she did not know with whom, and despite her longing to have a child, she was desperate not to lose Onassis and conceded to an abortion. Callas's friend, Edith Gorlinski. She would have loved children and, uh, and to have a nice family life. Uh, even with her career, she would, she would have liked that very much. Was there a, ever a possibility of a child with Onassis? Well, yes, but Mr. Nashes didn't want it and said he would end their friendship if she had the child, and so it had to be finished. You're saying that she was pregnant, though? Mm. And I think it distressed her greatly, but uh, she was in love with Mr. Nashes. The extent to which Callas had misjudged Onassis's feelings towards her became evident a mere 18 months later, when he married Jackie Kennedy. Devastated, Callas tried to take her own life. Callas's colleague, conductor Nicola Rachinho, and friend Nadia Stansiov. His hobby was collecting famous women. When a woman came along that was more famous than Maria, he dropped Maria. And it was a great tragedy for Maria because I really think Maria loved him very sincerely, so that when she was abandoned by Onassis, I think it was the big, big crisis in her life, Maria was never the same again. She was absolutely devastated because she had put all her trust in this man and she adored him, and she really desperately wanted to be his wife. And she couldn't understand how someone could deceive her like that. I mean, this is something that she never got over. She was never nasty about Jackie Kennedy, never. She just said that she had never met her and she did not know her. She couldn't judge her. But she was furious with Onassis and really blamed him. She said, I cannot understand how after so many years together and after declaring his love and knowing that I loved him as much as I did, that he should do this to me. And that he, that he deceived me, that he let me think until the very end that he was going to be with me. And that's something that I think hurt her enormously, more than she could ever express.
Extract there from the Miserere from Verdi's Il Trovatore in that 1956 recording conducted by Herbert von Karajan. It was in the American Hospital in Paris that Lawrence Kelly, director of the Dallas Opera Company, found Callas following her suicide attempt. As news around the world broke of Onassis's marriage to Jacqueline Kennedy, Kelly convinced Callas to return with him to Dallas to escape the media spotlight. There, Callas was placed in the care of music critic John Ardoin. Maria was sort of left in my care uh, for prima donna sitting, shall we say. And we became very, very close in that period. We spent every day together. We'd go shopping to the grocery store, to the drugstore, to buy her astrology magazines, which she liked, or to take her to movies. And um, during that time, I asked Maria if I could tape an hour interview for a radio program that I was doing in Dallas. Being honest uh, is a hell of a price to pay. You might be, as I have found out, uh, Frequently misunderstood, hated, uh, attacked, and I have not been able to fight back. It hurts. You hate it because it is unjust. The world is full of unjustness. And then, my lord, if you realize that I'm a woman, and by woman I mean a woman with all her weaknesses, I mean I'm undefended. I've been undefended all my life. On the other hand, if people love you, why do they love you? Not because I sang a beautiful aria or a note. What am I? Is she only a machine for singing? No. She's a human being. I need help, too. Life, they say, is terrible. Of course life is terrible if we make it that way. Life is hard. Of course it's hard. And I like to, you know, sort of sit back and enjoy my celebrity and money. But on the other hand, I can't. I've got to help myself. Since I was a child, I knew I had to help myself. So we came over and we did it. It was very straightforward. It was talk about... Uh, musical matters and, and about how she creates a part and studies it and what have you. There is only one standard to everything. You have to be a musician. You're a singer. You have to know your music. You've got to be equipped to do your job. So what is extraordinary about what I'm doing? Nothing. Well, wait a minute. Let's look into this case instead of come jumping to conclusions so quickly, which are so easy. Look at her record. What is this? So many cancellations. So many performances. She inaugurated so many theaters. She did that, she did that. She has been attacked by her mother and she has never said one single word in her defense. Nobody thought though, when they tear me down, how is this woman feeling? How is she taking it? Is there anybody to hold her hand? It must be hell. Of course it's hell. And then you have to go sing. No one has thought in the meantime of this poor human being or great human being, because I'm not poor. Because I have so much good sense that it hurts. But on the other hand, when you work, it would be so nice to be able to come home and have a nice, honest shoulder to lean on. 
I had hoped that of my husband. I was so wrong, because glory went to his head. Glory goes to people's head, not my head. Glory terrifies me, because you're quite uncomfortable up there. But other people around you, they get drunk. It's a wine that goes to the head. You know who takes care of me and who I know will always be there? My maid. Who adores me, idealizes me, and has been a nurse, sister, and mother to me. The revolution happened now in Paris. Do you think my parents scold or my sister? Not once. So what do we have? Four homes isolated. Mine and three of theirs. Miserably alone. At least I've accomplished something. But why should I have accomplished something? And why should I now be alone at home? Whether we all should be four of us, one's helping the other. What I think was happening that afternoon in Dallas was a sort of catharsis. Maria seemed to have this pressing need to verbally settle a lot of old professional and personal scores. Can you go and tell them what? That I am a human being, that I have my fears and that I have my hopes and that I have this and I have that. When they see you sparkling under the lights and they, uh, you know, see you well dressed and all that, that irritates people also. Also because you will not show yourself <laughs> sugary and all that. Why? It's undignified. Obsessively, she returned to the subject of Onassis. And I remember her saying, how could a man be so cruel? And then she broke down and started crying. It was a very embarrassing moment for me. I didn't know what to do. I took her in my arms where she stayed for just a moment and then she pushed herself away and went to the bathroom to wash her face and pull herself together. To my great surprise, when she came out, she said, have you got another reel of tape? And I said, sure. She said, well, put it on. I often wonder, will I ever really be happy or will I really pass my life always struggling to survive? I'd rather hope for the worst and have the best. If you do meet something that's good, you don't want it because you're so afraid. Because they care for one day, one month, one year. And then what? So my hopes have been, you know, up to the skies and then bang down. You know, when you're that at all, what does, what does one do? Sit in the four walls. I've been facing four walls all my life. How can I do, go out to, you know, sort of walk your feet off until you're so dull tired and go to bed. I'll be picked up. Beginning to think I should get a big dog and uh, have him around. So it's the only thing. For nine years you've been living a hidden life and a humiliating life for a person like I am. And you're not cured in two months. And I don't have that much time to get cured. Next year I've got to sing somehow or another. I don't care at what price. I've given up a hell of a career. And it's too easy to say, oh, thank you very much. For eight years, nine years, we did our best to be happy. Oh, ain't that sweet, as they say, Bulgari. So easy to say, no resentment. Sure, Christianity says, you must forgive, you must have be no resentment. I don't have resentment, but I have hurt. How can I get rid of that? One last cigarette and you drive me home. When Kalas and Onassis' relationship ended in 1968, she tragically stated to mezzo-soprano Giulietta Simeonato, Julia, remember my words. I started dying when I met this man and when I gave up my music. In interviews, however, Kalas often told a different story. Here she is in an interview with Barbara Walters, recorded in 1974, three years prior to her death. It has been said Maria Callas gave up singing for Aristotle Onassis. Ah... Uh, 
Well, I could not. I I could do that without answering that, but I think it's an honest question. Uh, I thought that when I met a, a man I loved, that I didn't need to sing, because I think that a woman, the, the most important thing in a woman is to have a man of her own and to make him happy. Because I don't think that uh, singing is a woman's job. You gave up your career. I didn't give up. I kept on singing. But you see, in our kind of uh, work, we have to keep on and on. You just cannot sing once or twice a year. Then you lose your muscles. Then you lose your, the training, the habits, the reflexes. So uh, naturally, any man who is in love with you the way he was, I'm sure he was, did not want me to sing. But I had to sing as I, we both, or I would not make up my mind about marriage, because I also had a husband, remember, who was making a lot of trouble. And uh, once you get married and divorced, you're very, very, I at least am very uh, frightened of getting married a second time. I don't think I ever will be, will. Really? I don't like using the word never, because you never know. You're not sorry you didn't? Did not get married? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I'm not sorry at all. Mm. I think love is so much better when you're not married. But then people say now, and you're being very conscious today. No, I think it's very, I think it's important that you are. But then people say, Maria Callas is broken-hearted. She gave oh, up this no. career. She didn't marry him. She married somebody else. Why should I marry? Give me one good reason why I should marry. Security, well to have the man you love forever. I have. To have him always. I would not like a man to have him always. To not lose him to somebody else? I would take that in the stride because here, a man has a, every right, like a woman has every right, to be able to fall in love with somebody else. There are no chains for love. Are you friends with Mr. Anasas? Very good friends. You know the rumors, of course, too, that you were not friends with Mrs. Anasas. I've never met her. We're not friends. I've just never met her. Do you have no bad feelings? Not at all. Not at all. Why should I? Of course, if she treats Mr. Onassis very badly, I might be very angry also because uh, I would do that to any friend, especially to a very dear friend, nearly a husband, as Onassis was to me. But you've never said so, to yourself, oh, if I'd only married, if, you know, five years ago I had married him, uh, this and this and that. But I left him of my own accord. We both agreed to that because we loved each other maybe too much. And men, strong men or weak men, whoever, I'm not talking about him generally, they usually want to completely domineer a woman, dominate them. And I want to be dominated of my own accord. But no regrets? No regrets. Mm. Oh, no. Otherwise, I would have married him. I had every occasion. But I don't believe in marriage. You recently said in a newspaper interview, I believe I must be just a little American kid at the back of my mind because I wanted someone, Prince Charming, to come in and take me away. Very true. Do you think he ever will? Up to now, he hasn't. Or rather, he has. Uh, you know, about the man I'm talking, of course, it was only the second man and probably the only one, a non-husband. Mr. Nassis, and you see, 
uh, you hope a lot. Maybe it's my fault. I put a man on a pedestal. And uh, I hoped a lot. And I probably was disappointed. And probably was my fault. Do you still hope? Hope in what? Do you still hope Fine. Prince Charming will come? Oh, well, won't be Prince Charming at our age. Yeah. At my age, I don't expect a Prince Charming. But I expect a mature man who will accept me as I am. Would you give up singing then? Oh, naturally. You would? Well, at this age, yes. Visidarte Visida More from Puccini's Tosca in that 1964 recording conducted by Georges Prêtre. Deserted by Onassis and without, in her own words, even a good friend, Callas's only recourse was to return to singing, but to do so presented a new set of problems. Her life as an artist 
had previously been built not only on her own willpower, but also on the ambitions of her mother and those of Meneghini. She now faced the necessity of singing for herself and her own needs, but with the realization that she must sing in competition with the ever-widening specter of her own legend. She knew full well her voice was not that of her prime, of her recordings, or even her last public appearances. I'd be pleased with three years, three good years coming back to what I was, she told John Ardoin. What now? What next for Kalas? Anything to survive, my dear. At my stage of the game, anything to survive. For Kalas, survival came in the form of a non-singing film version of Medea, directed by Pier Paolo Pasolini. Though Kalas gave a strong performance, the film was not a commercial success. Her disappointment must have been keenly felt, since she had hoped that it would be the springboard to a new path as an actress. Disillusioned by her experience with Pasolini, and unready to attempt a return to the stage, Kalas was nevertheless consumed with an overwhelming need to be artistically active and to forge a new identity for herself. She attempted a third recital recording of Verdi Arias, conducted by a friend, Nicola Rechino. I remember with great anguish those last sessions, but the voice had deteriorated. Uh, she knew it, and she couldn't recapture certain things. They were glimmers of greatness. She would try to do something, and it wouldn't. Uh, many times couldn't succeed. Other times we got close to it, and uh, it was like seeing a giant fall. It was at that time that Peter Menon of New York's Juilliard School of Music persuaded Callas to conduct a series of master classes. Callas approached her role as a teacher with the same deep involvement she brought to her own singing. She did not speak from on high, but as a friend or a colleague who had been over the same ground and was anxious to help her students through the difficult pitfalls she had encountered. In her wide-ranging comments, Callas was soft-spoken but frank, placing great stress on fidelity to the score, on expression through words, and above else, on finding truth in the music. In trying to convey what she meant, she often sang entire sections from the arias. These provided extraordinary flashes, however uneven, of the excitement and intensity that only she was capable of. Here is Callas teaching the baritone aria Cortigiani Vil Razza Danata from Verdi's Rigoletto. Horrible race, yes. cowardly race, yes. damned, 
at what price did you sell my own, my own, my own sweetheart, no, his own daughter, which means mio bene, his, his all, all of himself, of himself. In other words, you're, nothing is for you, but my, my daughter is my, the only treasure of mine. So, when you reach me, a figlia in paga, la rinditi, o se pur disarmata. And you have to keep on, very swift, eh? It's very tragic, this. Come, again.
For Callas, the Juilliard masterclasses served a greater and somewhat ulterior purpose, the rebuilding of her confidence before an audience. Here she could and did sing out without carrying the responsibility of performance and under the pretext of it being entirely spontaneous. Behind the scenes, however, Callas herself worked almost daily as a student with her coach from the Metropolitan Opera, and together they covered a vast amount of repertory. Callas's intensive private study, coupled with the public Juilliard sessions, bolstered her confidence and provided her with the courage needed to once again face a recording microphone, this time not for EMI, but for Philips, a recording of Verdi and Donizetti duets together with Giuseppe Di Stefano. The recording sessions, which began in London in December 1972, might never have taken place had it not been for Di Stefano's encouragement, who for his part realized that an artistic collaboration with Callas would prove a means of placing himself again in a musical and financial mainstream. In June of 1973 came the startling announcement that Callas and Di Stefano would embark on a worldwide concert tour. The tour, which began in Hamburg in October 1973, included appearances in Germany, Spain, France, Holland and two months of concerts in the US and Canada, concluding in Japan in the spring of 1974. Here is Callas in an interview with Mike Wallace, recorded in 1974, followed by an extract from an interview with Giuseppe Di Stefano and Callas biographer Ariana Stasinopoulos. You had not really sung in public. In public, not since 65. For eight years. Yeah. Why? Well, one of those things, I needed a rest, uh, I needed to detach myself also, because every now and then I think an artist has to sort of feel distant, take her distance. But eight years? Well, years go by very quickly. <laughs> well, then tell me, how does it feel to sing again now after oh, eight years? Oh, very nice. I wish I was what I was 20 years ago, but nobody is what he was 20 years ago. What aren't you today that you were 20 well, years ago? Well, the acrobats and the uh, top notes as they used to be, and, uh, you know, the fireworks that a young person has. When the notice is... For instance, after Hamburg, where you opened on this new tour, when the notices are better for the personality than for the voice, is that a matter now of much concern to you, uh, Madame Callas? Well, first of all, no. Uh, first of all, I, uh, I don't really read the critics. During my full glory, I've always had bad critics. But you but yourself know that your voice is not course. what it was. On the occasion of this comeback tour of yours, one critic in Germany wrote that the world tour might turn out to be a grandiose finale, or it could turn out to be an artistic tragedy. So far, it hasn't been a tragedy. And, and you don't... Uh, I belong to the category, the difference between the uh, ancient Greeks and me is that I don't cry on tragedies uh, until they happen. If they happen, then I don't cry on the tragedies. I cope with them. So... Uh, Let's hope for the best. I can understand why emotionally she needed the tool. 
She had not sung since 1965. Her last performance was at Covent Garden as Tosca. And uh, she longed to feel that she was still loved, that she was still respected. And uh, Giuseppe Di Stefano needed also that tour, I believe. And it was not really, it, it would never have happened without him because she simply did not have the confidence to do it on her own. It was an artistic disaster, and nobody can claim otherwise. The first concert that was meant to be given at the festival hall was cancelled. Well, you're implying that she was frightened and that uh, Mr. Yes, Di of course she was frightened. persuaded her almost and against her will. On the question of the, the artistic value of the tour, let me quote one, let me quote one, one, one English critic who described Callas' voice as a strained, a strained horse shadow in her former voice. His reaction was to well, he's, he's a member of the public. She was he's the, a member of the public. She never was so beautiful. The public was enthusiastic. But what was she the made voice a lot like? of money when she still didn't have the boat. The, the, the ship, you know, the cargo you, making money. Did you see her she face? She was happy, but I, did, I mean, I didn't do all this. Did you see her face during that interview when she was trying to prove that she was improving? Her face was in such pain because she knew. Did, 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 you, know not, did you not think that's that she was in distress during the tour, that she was unhappy with her musical performance? So that's really the essence of it, isn't it? What but is the tragedy? She was, was she happy to be back? That's the point, isn't of it? Of course she was happy. The, so uh, I Mr. Letters, Yanna, yeah. I got letters. This letter is the most beautiful thing because she's... What better, after having everything in opera and in the social life, to be back to singing? And I said, last night I could not sleep. Wait a yes, minute. Yes. I could not sleep, and he said, finally, I had the courage to listen to the tape of last night. Boy, what a progress. I'm so happy. I don't read the uh, criticisms because, you see, I know exactly what I do before anybody tells me. So I don't want to read them and this way uh, disturb my peace of mind and my nerves. So I feel that if I don't read criticisms, it's better. Naturally, the voice is not what it used to be 20 years ago. Nobody pretends that. It's natural. The audience knows that. I know it. They can't just applaud the legend uh, if you don't give them something to... Uh... And after all, what is the legend? Uh, the public made me. What is a legend? I think I'm a very human, <laughs> human being. If I wasn't human, I, I probably would have sung better. Well, throughout my whole life, I always thought I should never sing because I was never good and all that. I'm the first terrible critic of myself. But uh, I've really never said I will not be singing again. I said that to myself 10,000 times. <laughs> but uh, I really never officially declared that I would not sing anymore anymore. I uh, had uh, created some bad habits. As a matter of fact, I think that uh, on the whole I have improved. I had a, acquired a sort of a, as they called it, a wobble on the high notes, mm -hmm. which is a pulsation, and I managed to improve that. Now, during the concerts, uh, I will improve even more the whole status of the voice, because there's nothing like the stage that can make you work properly. Though the mere presence of Kalas created an uproar wherever she performed, it was painstakingly clear that she was desperately trying to stay afloat vocally with a voice that was broken. She was in no way helped by the off-pitch and different singing of Di Stefano and by the fuzzy accompaniment of 82-year-old accompanist Ivan Newton. The true tragedy was that Di Stefano was risking nothing, while Kalas risked everything. To compromise her name and what it stood for was a clear price to pay for survival. Critic Martin Bernheimer 
of the Los Angeles Times. She was very lovely, very charming, very gracious. The voice, I think, was, was really shot. The vibrato was almost totally out of control. The timbre was, was dull and thin. The high notes were very dangerous. What few she sang, she very carefully selected the repertory to avoid singing anything very high. And yet the, the biggest disappointment for me was not that she sang badly, but that this great singing actress couldn't convey anything dramatically. Here she was stripped of drama, coming out on the stage doing a naked concert and doing it with very formal manners. She came out and did the Habanera from Carmen. And the oldest cliche of all, she came out, this great singing actress, came out and put her hands on her hips <laughs> and swayed a little bit and sang the notes and the words. Uh, the people who loved her and who knew her wanted her so badly to be able to do it one more time. So there, there was, there was a, almost a feverish hysterical vitality in that house, but there was no fooling anyone about what we were hearing and seeing. On November 26, 1973, Kalas and De Stefano performed at the Royal Festival Hall in London. Accompanist Robert Sutherland recalls. A few weeks later, we were in London, and she was terrified. I mean, absolutely terrified. Before she stepped on the stage, she'd said to me, I'm scared. Now, I've played for lots of prima donnas. If, if one of them had said to me, I'm scared, I would have known what to say. Do you know what I mean? Some kind of word of comfort. I couldn't think what to say to this woman. Her legend was so great, you know what I mean? And I didn't know her very well at that time, at the beginning of the tour. So I said nothing, and she walked on and was transformed. It was incredible. If London had hoped for a miracle, it did not take place. This was another, an unwise Kalas, an echo of the bright, luminous figure who had once blazed through the operatic firmament like a comet. John Ardoin recalls a story once told of the soprano Giuditta Pasta, who in 1850 had not sung in public for more than 10 years, but who had been persuaded from retirement to appear in scenes from Anna Bolena. As the English theatre manager Benjamin Lumley recalls, the spectacle was melancholy, not to say painful to all who could feel with true artistic sympathy. She moved like a mighty shadow of the past before the eyes of the spectators, but it was the shadow of a shade. Yet there was one in the audience whom Pasta's voice spoke to that evening more than a century ago. Pauline Viardot was hearing her for the first time. With her eyes full of tears, she said to her companion, You are right. It is like the Cenacolo of da Vinci in Milan. A wreck of a picture, but the picture is the greatest picture in the world. I must say this evening I was a little more emotion than usual because when a public loves me that much, I have to give that much more. And there's no end to it. So I'll try a little more and I'll do the usual song, which I say, O mio babbino caro, o my public caro. Yeah. 
said, I need to be constantly boosted because I am a born pessimist. That is true. Really? That is true. And you need somebody always puffing you up? Yes, because uh, my, my bar, the, 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 the weapon that is against me is exactly that. Huh. Whatever I do is never good enough. A perfectionist. Perfectionist, unfortunately. And perfectionists are miserable to live with. Mm -hmm. That is true. Are you a lonely person? Uh, not really. We have to be alone. I, I feel the necessity to be alone frequently. It's our work. I don't fear loneliness because I'm never alone. I have friends. I have, uh, I have my own interior world that uh, I can live with myself for weeks. I don't need other people. But I know that other people are willing to, uh, to be with me when I want. Any regrets about the Onassis? The uh... un no, no, no regrets. Uh, what he does is his own uh, uh, privilege. But when he left? Uh, did he? Did you feel that you had given? He didn't go. He didn't, he didn't go. go. We had just decided that uh, that I would resume my own life. Ah. Were you happy to see him marry Jacqueline Kennedy? Uh, I was happy to see. I would be happy to see him happy under any circumstances. And if he's happy with Jackie, I'm more than happy for him. Is he? That's not for me to say. That's only for him to say. Do you know what I think? I think you're still in love with Onassis. Well, I think in uh, some way both of us are probably are in love because we have led a beautiful life together and we, I think, both of us understand each other as nobody. But uh, at a certain stage, love becomes different. If, if Ari Onassis said, Maria, come on, just the two of us, in the oh, declining I years. I haven't even thought of that. You see, if I uh, was brought to a stage that I left him, that meant that I uh, the deep core of the thing, I really didn't love him anymore. Wait just a second. You had a husband. And you, I had a lover. And you had a lover. And that's that. You had your husband, you had your lover. There are not very many men that can be near me. Why? Uh, it's a sort of a... It could be a handicap to be famous. You mean you're a man-eater? No. Okay. No. Uh, but near you, very many interested people can be there. And I have a very active mind, and I might frighten uh, real men away, too. You discarded a husband. You no longer have your lover. Well, I just... And your, your job is, I mean, you're, you're now professionally, yes. you're making a tour, but that is not the compelling thing that it was, and one wonders what is at the core of your life, what is at the center of your life today, Madame Callas. The center of my life is to be ha peaceful with yourself, and uh, to, do, to be able to uh, not be bored, which is already a lot. But one senses that you are searching for something. No, I don't search anymore. I'm at peace with myself and I accept myself as I am, with my uh, limits, with my advantages. And uh, now, uh, in December 2nd, I will be 50 years old and I'm proud of every minute of it. I have made the proper decisions, I have made mistakes. I've uh, held a poker face when things uh, go sour, which is something that uh, everybody should. You have held a poker face? Yes. When has Maria Callas held a poker face? Oh, many a times. I consider myself a very, very lucky person because uh, from nothing, uh, with no favors asked, 
I have become what the public has made me become. So that is extremely rare. Maria Callas in an interview with Mike Wallace, recorded in 1974. Callas and Di Stefano ended their tour in Sapporo, Japan, on the 11th of November 1974. It was her last public appearance. She returned to Paris, where she became a virtual recluse in her Paris apartment. There has been perhaps only one faithful companion to Maria throughout her life, her loneliness. The price sometimes one has to pay for his glory and his success. It's also the price for being God's instrument. In 1975, Onassis died following a gallbladder operation, and with his passing, Kalas herself ceased to see any reason in living. Well, after Onassis died, she lost enthusiasm for life. really became very it was very difficult to talk to her i mean she dismissed everything if one were talking on the telephone to her i mean it was almost a matter of before one rang her and making a list of subjects to talk about because she would sweep everything aside oh it doesn't matter any longer i don't care life has nothing left for me any longer during the last 3 years of her life kalas had become a specter of her former self resorting to tranquilizers and sleeping tablets to help her with her sleeplessness. After such immense success, she 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 was crying. She said, "Ah, I was I was horrible. I was horrible. I was no good." The kind of artist who was never happy. People like this, they cannot open and they suffer. They then they don't want to show it and they take pills. These pills were damaging the brain. She was taking three pills Then later she forgot she took three pills and she took another three. She was falling on the floor like a she didn't want to fight anymore. She she was going to taking these sleeping pills and waiting for death. The first word when I met in 72 she says uh, she said caro Pippo ogni giorno per fortuna un giorno di meno. Every day thank God is one day less. Kalas died less than 2 years following Anassis's death on Friday the 16th of September 1977 in her Paris apartment. She was 53 years old. Accompanist Robert Sutherland. Uh yeah, well, I was surprised that it happened so suddenly, but I, on reflection it didn't seem to me uh such an unexpected thing. I think I think when people have a heart attack there's probably a moment when they have to make a decision either to fight for life or not and i think she didn't
As an artist, Kalas attained heights unequaled by any other opera singer. Yet ironically, when she reached the summit of her achievements, she realized that all she really wanted were the things she had willed herself to set aside. In 1969, she told her colleague Giulietta Simeonato, In my life, I have had some great success, some great moments, but I was admired, not loved. Maria Callas, noted Michel Rubinet, suffered a fate as flamboyant as it was tragic. Like her favorite characters, those women who come into their own fully as they submitted to the playing out of their destiny, Norma, Violetta, Tosca, Medea. With her death at the age of 53, Callas should still have been singing magnificently, but as is often the case, genius is quick-lived. As the well-known New York Times music critic Harold C. Schoenberg noted after her death, Callas triumphed because of brains and temperament rather than intrinsic beauty of voice. Everything she did was musically and dramatically interesting. Others merely sang. Callas lived her roles with scorching intensity. The apex of Callas's career was short, and towards the end she was displaying only the shreds of her voice. But, as Harold C. Schoenberg noted, for some 15 years after 1947, she was a symbol fired into the very psyche of the opera-goer. She drove her audiences wild. She had a kind of electrical transmission that very few musicians have ever approached. Callas, dead at 53, blazed through the skies and was burnt out early. But what years those were. John Ardoy noted that when one considers the recorded evidence of Callas's career and charts the splendors, the triumphs, the audacity and dangers of her ride, a compelling conclusion emerges. With so wide a repertoire and so intense an involvement with her roles, there is no doubt that she demanded more from her voice than it could comfortably deliver. Yet, a parallel conclusion is equally clear. Had she put herself in less peril, had she taken fewer chances or remained within safer limits, she would never have been callous. You cannot achieve as she achieved by halfway measures. The mezzo-soprano Teresa Berganza stated that Callas was the first to turn opera into real theatre and show that the more one brings out the drama in opera, the stronger the music emerges. In her opinion, no one since has ever touched her. Callas's colleague Graziella Schiuti. She brought, finally, drama to the opera. And what it meant, what it was meant by, by the origin of the opera, when Monteverdi and all the Camerata Fiorentina, let's say, invented this new uh, expression, it was a melodrama. It was a recitar cantando, which means that you were performing. It was a singing actor. And then with the evolution of the singing, with the 19th century, the new composers, all went into the bel canto and little by little then lost in the performers the strength of the drama. It became some sort of beautiful sound exhibition. And it's, uh, it was a betrayal, as a matter of fact. Callas, with her strength of drama, brought back to the origin of opera what it means. Callas was not just a singer. She was a complete artist. As conductor Antonino Votto noted, it's foolish to discuss her as a voice. She must be viewed totally as a complex of music, drama and movement. There is no one like her today. She was an aesthetic phenomenon. Franco Zeffirelli viewed Callas as an artist of the caliber of Michelangelo Onijinsky. Leonard Bernstein called her the greatest artist in the world, 
while Lucchino Visconti regarded her as beauty, something beautiful. Intensity, expression, everything. She was a monstrous phenomenon, almost a sickness, the kind of actress that has passed for all time. General Manager of the Metropolitan Opera, Rudolf Bing. Once one heard and saw Maria Callas, one can't really distinguish it uh, in a part. It was very hard to enjoy any other artists, however great, afterwards. She imbued every part she sang and, and acted with such incredible personality and life. One move of her hand was more than another artist could do in a whole act. Callas made a mark in the extremely difficult world of opera, and not by chance. Hard work, stamina, a demanding attitude of others as well as of herself, the constant living up to her extremely exposed position as prima donna assoluta. These attributes sum up her life. Soprano Renata Scotto. It was a, a kind of discipline that I learned from her. She teach me how to, to be a singer with uh, a very serious work, not because only I have a beautiful voice. It's nothing to have a voice. Voice is important because it's the first thing, but then you have to work and to understand each word, each phrase, and, and she was great for that because uh, she cleaned up all the, the old tradition. She knew at that uh, moment, and it was the year, the years when uh, um, sing, singer went on stage, uh, put out uh, high notes, effect, and nothing else. So she started to, to say to the audience, to the audience, Opera is more than sing. The enormous influence of Callas's singing, her incomparable artistry and musicianship, have forever changed the way we perceive opera, in particular the bel canto repertoire. And certain roles such as Medea, Norma, Violetta, Tosca, and Lucia, which are inextricably linked to her. She opened a door for singers such as Renata Scotto, Joan Sutherland, and Montserrat Caballé, who followed in her footsteps and who made bel canto masterpieces such as Norma, Lucia, or La Sonambula, the cornerstones of their repertoire. Soprano, Montserrat Cavallé. She really was very special. She was for the world of the opera, the unique, unique real singer of our era, which I sang, really, we have to say, thank you, Maria to come to us, to give us the opportunity to know what is the real music life, the real music life in a stage. And thank you to, to come to us and to remain with us. And finally, here is soprano Grace Bumbry, Antonio Papano, Placido Domingo, John Copley, Judy Dench. Nicholas Gage and Franco Zeffirelli. Maria Callas opened the door to popularity of the opera world to the man on the street. You know, the rest of us sort of, sort of follow suit. We're just sort of dragging our, dragging behind her. But but she she was the inspiration 
for all that came behind. That's wonderful when somebody um, transcends uh, uh, just the ordinary uh, opera fame. And this is only the one regret, big regret that I have in life that I was not able to sing with her. I think of Maria Callas when I look at music, and I think, how would she have made of that? She's very present in my life, like lots of people. I think she touched our lives in a very curious sort of way. She was, in my eyes, completely supreme. I'm only sorry that she didn't live longer and we saw many more performances. Like the heroine in uh, Tosca, she uh, devoted herself totally to art and to love and did it with such intensity that she was consumed by them. She, uh, uh, she died because of the terrible losses that she suffered, the loss of her voice, the loss of the love of her life, uh, Aristotle Onassis. <laughs> that was the tragedy of Maria Callas. Great lady. Good, good lady. Thirty-five years after her death, Maria Callas continues to touch lives. She certainly has mine. So much has been written about her, and yet there remains so much more to be said. In the words of Michel Ribonnet, happily the discs are there to pay homage to the artist to whom we owe an eternal debt, and to bear witness to an art which will live forever. Callas's art fortunately is inexhaustible, even if her recordings are not, wrote Terence McNally. She has given us a lifetime's work to be grateful for, to learn from and to wonder at. The proof is tangible. It is in her recordings. We are in her debt forever. Opera has new possibilities thanks to her. It is up to us to embrace them. After Callas, there is no turning back. As Tito Gobi noted, probably millions of words have been written about La Callas and quite a few about the vulnerable, lonely, elusive creature who was Maria. There is little I can add. She shone for all to brief a while in the world of opera, like a vivid flame attracting the attention of the whole world, and she had a strange magic which was all her own. I always thought she was immortal, and she is. From me, Adrian Fuchs, I wish you a wonderful weekend, and I hope that you will join me again on the 30th of November at 8pm here on Fine Music Radio for a program on pianist Stephen de Groot. In the meantime, remember that you can download tonight's broadcast as well as some of my previous programs from On and Off the Record at www.onandofftherecord.com. Good night.